Today we will continue the last segment of the neurological system. We'll be discussing the continuation of, neuro, of nursing care for clients who have neurosensory disorders. Um, we'll look at conditions like Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's, multiple sclerosis, headaches, eyes and ear disorders, head injury, stroke or CVA, and then we end up with a spinal cord injury, SCI. Now, uh, there are certain things that are important when you are reading these topics, this topic in this, in, in, in message, under the neurological system, there are certain areas you want to build your focus on those areas. So for those areas you want to build your focus on, they're going to help you to like uh, give you a clue or give you a sense of direction on what to expect in there. So we're going to have that discussion. So we'll look at, uh, we'll talk about packet sin. And there are specific areas I want for us to focus on when we look at this condition now. So if you have the, if you have the UWOR questionnaire, you're asking that there are certain questions that are going to ask when it comes to Parkinson's disease. So in Parkinson, we want to focus on the disease process. We want to focus on the treatment. We want to focus on the nursing management for Parkinson's disease condition. So these are specific areas we're going to focus on as we go along. And as we focus on them, we just want you to make sure to do your due diligence. That is to play a portion to make sure you've absorbed everything about Parkinson's that are required for you to remember and know in detail for the disorder. So I'm going to start with uh, the first one is PD, Parkinson's disease. Parkinson's disease. Now, for Parkinson's disease, what is important about Parkinson's disease is um, it is a progressive debilitating disease condition that grossly affects motor function. So Parkinson's affects our motor function. It creates so much disability um, as it progresses. In Parkinson's disease, there are four cardinal symptoms that summarize Parkinson's disease. Those symptoms include, we have tremors, that's the first one, tremor, that's one. We have um, muscle rigidity, second one is muscle Rigidity. The third one is bradykinesia. The client will have bradykinesia. And <coughs> excuse me, the last one is going to be postural instability. They will have postural uh, instability. They cannot have a stable posture or, or posture. They're going to have these four symptoms as the cardinal signs for. Parkinson's disease. Um, this bradykinesia, it means slow movement. The client will have very slow movement. And these symptoms will only get worse with time, with age, with progression of the condition. They're going to get worse in, with, with the patient. 
These are the four cardinal symptoms that characterize Parkinson's disease. Now, what is important on here also, these symptoms occur when there is an overstimulation of a neurochemical called acetylcholine. So acetylcholine, acetylcholine is the major cause of the client having this Parkinson's disease. So there will be increased production and there will be overstimulation of the, what we call the basal ganglia that will give rise to the increased production of this particular neurochemical. And that will lead to the tremors, the gait instability, will lead to postural problem, slow movement, and then the client will have muscle rigidity. So these are the characteristics of Parkinson's disease. Now, um, acetylcholines allow, now, <clears throat> when, when there is all production of acetylcholine, <clears throat> it results in decreased dopamine. So acetylcholine attack in a, in a sense, it's, it's not really attacking, but the more we produce, our body produces, uh, the more the body produces acetylcholine, the lower dopamine. So, and uh, we know that dopamine controls these things. So the more we have acetylcholine in the body, the lower we're gonna have dopamine. So when the body is producing acetylcholine, when the body stimulates the basal ganglia, basal ganglia, so the basal ganglia is being stimulated to produce more acetylcholine. When more acetylcholine is produced, it decreases the amount of dopamine level in our body. Then it results into these four symptoms that might give rise to Parkinson's disease. That's what happened in the, in the entire Parkinson's disease condition. And, then, and that's when the client going to have, um, the client will have all these things happening. So when more are produced, the client going to have, uh, the client cannot, uh, the client cannot make those swift movements. They cannot do things in accordance with gait and other postural stability. The client will lose those stability in their, in their life. And they're going to have difficulty movement. They're going to have shaking, uh, those shakiness and other things. Now, so in this case, um, our goal for treatment in this condition is to increase dopamine just by decreasing acetylcholine. That's the goal of treatment for this condition, to decrease acetylcholine, which will help us to increase the level of dopamine. When we do that, we've achieved, the, we've achieved our goal in the condition. And that's why we gave medication that will increase level of dopamine in our body. An example of those drugs is what we call the dopaminetic medication, which we'll look at them in some, just in a in few minutes uh, from now. And then we we'll also want to pay more time to these medications that we call the dopaminergics. How do they work? What is the effect on the body? What are the health education for the client who is taking this medication? It is important to know them for the English. Now, um, so in here, Parkinson's disease has five categories. It has five stages. Now, these are important points. There are five stages of Parkinson's disease, five stages. Now, those five stages include, you have stage one. Stage one is the, um, the first stage. In stage one, there is always going to be unilateral, unilateral 
shakiness. The client will become shaky, um, but it's going to be like just one-sided at the first stage. It's at the beginning. Uh, or there will be tremors of one limb or shakiness or tremors. There will be tremors, but it's going to be only in one, on one side. So in stage one. Now, I'm going to break this into stages because the ankler wants us to know at what stage what is happening. And every symptom you're going to see with the patient tells you the stage at which the patient is at in this condition. So in the first stage, there will be, be one-sided or what we call unilateral shaking or tremors of one limb. Maybe the right hand will be like, there will be, there will be like those fine tremors or the left hand, maybe like the left leg or the right leg in stage one. Now, in stage two, the disease, is, the disease is progressing. In stage two, then we're gonna have bilateral. So we'll have bilateral tremors in stage two. So we'll have bilateral tremors in stage two. We're gonna have that in there. Stage two, there'll be bilateral tremor of the limbs. And the client will have walking will become difficult. Balance will also become difficult in stage two. Then in stage three, in stage three, there will be physical movement problem. There will be physical problem. Now the client will have impairments in physical movement, in the ability to move around. There will start to be some low impairments coming in. Stage one is unilateral, stage two is bilateral, stage three, now the entire body to move around the motor. The motor function of the client is becoming impaired. Then in stage four, in stage four, now these symptoms will decrease. Tremors can decrease, but the client will still have echinacea and the client will have rigidity. So in, in here, there will be decreased tremor. In stage four, there will be decreased tremors, but the client will have echinacea. They will have echinacea in stage four, and they're going to have muscle rigidity. They're going to have muscle rigidity. They will have muscle rigidity that will be increasing and it will be becoming, it will becoming, it will become more primatic. It will, be, it will start to surface more in stage four. Um, now, in stage four, the client ADLs have now been hampered. They cannot carry on the ADLs adequately in stage four. That's what happened in stage four. Yeah. Then in stage five, which is the last stage, it is the stage in which the client becomes unable to stand. The client is unable to stand up. The client cannot stand anymore. It is the last stage. The client cannot even walk. The client becomes dependent. In this stage, the client becomes the client becomes dependent. So the client needs help for everything the client would do in his or her life in stage five. At that stage, the client will have start to have dementia. In stage five, the client start to have dementia in this stage. That's what happening in the five stages when it comes to um, Parkinson's disease. Now, in Parkinson's disease, um, the client is going to have generally the client will have fatigue at the beginning. They will have decreased manual dexterity, the both arms. They're going to have, um, they will have a stooped posture. They will have a stooped posture. 
the client will become slow, they'll have shuffling, propulsive gait. The client will become monotonous. The client tone will not change. They'll get talking whether they are mild or they are, or they are happy, they'll have one tone. The client trim the finger will be trim will be trembling and they will be shaking. The client will have muscle rigidity and the client will have bradykinesia or akinesia. The client is going to have mask-like facial expression. So the client face become mask. Their face, when they are smiling, they are talking, they are crying, the face remains in the same position. The client will have difficulty chewing and swallowing. The client is going to have drooling. They will have dysarteria. Uh, they will have progressive difficulties in handling their ADA, that is the activities of daily life. And then they are going to have cognitive impairment, which is dementia. So these are the symptoms that come with Parkinson's disease. But they do not come at once. Like I broke them down in the various stages, that's how they're going to come as the disease progresses. Now, there is not a specific laboratory test that we can order to do this test. There are a series of tests, but everything depends on history and the background of the progression of the condition. So we, there is not a specific test that we can do with the diagnostic condition. We do history taking and physical examination to diagnose Parkinson's disease. And we can do other labs like uh, the level of the acetylcholine and other things to determine how high it is within the body. Now, for the nursing care, it is where I have more interest because you want to understand what would a nurse do for a patient who is having Parkinson's problem. You want to administer their medication as prescribed. You want to monitor the medication effectiveness and you want to make recommendation to the doctor to change the dosage and the time at which the drug is administered, which can help to provide best coverage to cover up all these things when the client is having these imbalances in the neurochemicals. The nurse wants to monitor the client's swallowing because we say as time progresses, uh, as the condition progresses, the client will have difficulty swallowing and other problems. So the nurse will monitor the client when the client is eating, the client chewing, the client swallowing. You want to consult a speech therapist when the client has Parkinson's disease. You want to look at, you want to also consult a nutrition a nutritionist. You want to make sure that, uh, <clears throat> you want to, you want to always, always, always put in choking precautions. That's why when we are at this group home, when the clients are there who have this condition, we we'll go for job training. We do the hemorrhage maneuver, we do all those techniques, we do the CPR, all things, to be able to help the client when the client is having choking problems because this client that we deal with in a group home, in the in the first uh, in in the nursing home, in the care home, ma majority of them have Parkinson's condition. So we can help them if they have choking problems. Um, we want to consult a doctor or dietitian for appropriate diet, which include the client of this condition, the client will take a semi-solid food because the client cannot keep taking solid food because the client is having deterioration of the entire system. Uh, metabolism becomes slower in this condition. We want to make sure we document the client weight at every, at least weekly. And that's why when I used to work at a place in Pennsylvania, uh, Divine Providence, we'll take the client out for weigh every week. And some of the, some of the staff will say, why do we weigh this client every week? We have to because their weight, 
their weight is important to monitor the weight, the diet intake, keep a dietary log for the dietary intake and monitor this. These things can help them. Encourage fluid and document intake, provide small frequent meal, and you make sure you evaluate the need for high calorie, high protein supplements to maintain the client's weight. You want to maintain the client mobility for as long as possible. You want to encourage the client to do exercise that will help them to burn, uh, to, to burn, uh, that will help them to make them uh, fit and to make them healthy. You want to make sure the client attend yoga if that is prescribed for the client, and you want to make sure the client uh, ADLs are being taken care of adequately to help the client to be at his or her maximum level. Um, for the medication, it takes several weeks before the drugs start to get effective. When you take these drugs for Parkinson's disease, it takes several weeks for the drugs to start for the drugs to become effective. Now, one of the drugs of choice we give to the client is what we call the dopaminergic medication. Dopaminergics. Dopaminergics medication. Um, these medications, they are specifically to increase the level of dopamine by suppressing acetylcholine or suppressing the basal ganglia for producing or for stimulating acetylcholine to be produced in high amount. That's how this medication works. Um, under here, while the client is taking other medication combination, we want to maintain the drug therapeutic level. So we do blood draw to test it to know the client traffic level at different interval. Now, this medication that followed this kind of drug called dopaminergics, this medication, they have what we call dark, they cause dark color urine, dark urine. That's one of the biggest thing about them. They make the urine color turn dark when you take them. Um, this drugs can be given orally. Example, you have the liver dopa, uh, liver dopa. So liver dopa is an example of dopamine medications. This medication can uh, increase dopamine level in the basal ganglia. Um, they can be combined with carbidopa. That's why they can, they, they can call them carbidopa, uh, liver dopa, carbidopa. Or liver dopa. That's how they can call it because they are combined medications to, to help the client with combine carbidopa and liver dopa to produce the best effect for the client. Um, this medication, due, due to drug tolerance and metabolism, the dosage, the form of the medication, and the times of administration must be adjusted to avoid periods of poor mobilities. So if the client will take this medication in the morning hours and they will, they will not sleep and then they will not be able to move around due to the drug side effect, so the nurse want to recommend to the doctor that the drug should be administered at night at bedtime when the client is getting ready to go to bed. That's why we say at the beginning, the nurse must review the client MAR to make important recommendations to the HCP to make sure that the drugs is administered at the appropriate time that will have a good coverage. That's what we said at the beginning. And that's why we have to make those recommendations. And um, what to monitor the wearing of the drugs, we call we call the wearing of phenomenon. So when you are on this medication, there is something we call wearing of phenomenon. Wearing of 
phenomenon of the medication of these dopaminergic medications. So they have the wearing up phenomenon, and uh, this wearing up phenomenon, it has problem with the, with the movement. It causes problem with the client movement, and that's why we must recommend to the doctor that the drugs should be administered at the time that the patient will be in bed, so that when the patient is having the wearing up effect, the patient will already be asleep. So it cannot hamper the patient movement. The patient, uh, it put the patient at risk for fall. That's one of the recommendations the nurses have to make to the doctors when clients on this medication. Um, so in this case, we need to adjust it and other things. So if the client is having a holiday with, with, with the family, so we want to hold the drugs. So if the client, let's say the, we are having a Thanksgiving day, Thanksgiving day, Christmas, and other big days, big holidays, parents who are at this home, their kids, their children come to visit them. So if the parents, if the parents have a visitor for that day, want to hold this medication because it's going to interfere with the patient's activities during the time of the of visitation. It is important to know these things about the medication. Um, we also serve dopamine agonists. Like you have bromocryptine. So another drug group that we serve for this condition is what we call dopamine Agonist, the dopamine agonist, dopamine agonist. Example of the dopamine agonist is what we call bromocryptine. Bromocryptine. Now, bromocryptine is an example of the drugs dopamine agonist. You have ropinorol, you have pramapizole. These are all drugs that can just activate, activate, they activate the release of dopamine to increase the level of functioning for the client who is having. Parkinson's disease. For these drugs, over here, they can cause autostatic hypertension. So you monitor the client BP. The client should not just wake up from lying position to standing position abruptly. The client should take some time to stand up and the client should be aware of this side effect medication. It can cause dyskinesia and the client might have hallucination for this condition. So dyskinesia, hallucination, autostatic hypertension are common side effects for the dopamine agonist medications. Then we also have the anti-cholinergic medication. For these drugs, we can also serve what we call the anti-cholinergic medication. Remember we did this medication when we did pharmacology. And that's what I said. I love to teach farm before teaching medicine because it helps you to make you understand for the second time what you read in pharmacology you're going to see majority of them in message. So the client can also take anticholinergic medication. Example, you have the benzotropine. Benzotropine is an example under here. Benzotropine. Uh, there are examples under there. It helps to control the tremors and muscle rigidity. For this medication, like when we're doing the SSRIs, when we're doing the tricyclic antidepressant, we talk about serotonin effect we lift out to you those symptoms of serotonin effect and we talk about drugs uh, we talk about the drugs anticholinergic effect where we say this effect of drugs anticholinergic effect and that of serotonin effect they are almost the same and i gave you the differences between this serotonin effect of medication and that of the drugs anticholinergic effect of, of the drugs i gave you these two differences because they are important in the end class and i also talk about 
neurotic malignant syndrome as a medical emergency when the client is on those antipsychotic medication and I also talk about um, the EPS syndrome, the extra parameter side effect of this medication of this medication. They all come with this almost they are almost like the same. There are slight differences between this side effect or this symptom symptomic effect of the medication. And I get into it because I knew that they're gonna come in cluster form and we have to know them bit by bit. Now under here for the anticholinergic medication, the client is gonna have anticholinergic side effects, which include dry mouth. And remember, we said when the client has a dry mouth, the client should chew gum, gum that contains no sugar. Sugarless gum can be healthy, can be the remedy for what? For dry mouth. The client can take uh, ice chip. The, the client is also going to have constipation. And we say when the client has constipation for anticholinergic effect of medication, the client should take high fiber diet and drink more fluid. Then we said the client going to have urinary retention and the client can have acute confusion. These are all symptoms of the anticholinergic effect of the drug the client would take for the dopamine or for the PD condition. Um, the client can take other drugs like uh, the monoamine, also this type B inhibitors. The client can take other antiviral medications such as amantadines to stimulate dopamine and prevent its reuptake. Um, so these are just drugs the client can take to help them for this condition. Any question on Parkinson's disease? Any question? In Alzheimer, in Alzheimer condition, um, in Alzheimer condition, there are things we want to look at that are very important, and I want us to look at them in detail. Um, Alzheimer is a non-reversible type of dementia, so Alzheimer is a form of dementia, but it is non-reversible, meaning it cannot be reversed. That's what we call it, Alzheimer. They are irreversible dementia um that develops over many years it does not come right away it comes with small smaller symptoms for long period of time um the framework is based on three stages azama has three stages you have the early stage the mild stage and the late stage there are three distinct azama stages the early stage the late, uh, the mild stage, and the late stage. Now, dementia is defined as uh, when the client has multiple cognitive deficits. When the client has multiple cognitive deficits that will affect their motor skills, um, it, I'm sorry, multiple deficits that will impair their memory and can affect their motor skills, their language, and other things that they do or in the in the environment, so um, dementia is part of Alzheimer's condition because they are intertwined. Um, it simply means the diagnosis from the time we diagnose dementia to the or Alzheimer's to the time that the client will become worse, it takes roughly about ten years. Um, so it takes like ten years. Sometimes people can live up to twenty years. From the date they got diagnosed with the condition 
up for the day, they're going to lose or they're going to pass out. Now, Alzheimer is most likely to occur in clients above 60s or in their 60s or 70s uh, with age. The lower age is the number one factor for Alzheimer condition or Alzheimer disease. Alzheimer is categorized by memory loss. That's the first thing. So in Alzheimer condition, the client will have memory loss. The client will have memory loss in Alzheimer condition. That's the first characteristic of Alzheimer. The client will have poor judgment. The client will have problem with judgment. They cannot have good judgment. They will have a very poor judgment. The client is going to also have changes in their personality. They will have changes in personality, changes in their personality. That's what's going to happen in the case of Alzheimer's condition. These are the three distinct features of Alzheimer's condition. Now, I'm saying this because every condition, we must know the distinct feature. We must know the cardinal symptom of every condition. In Alzheimer's, we're going to have memory loss, who have poor judgment, who have changes in the client's personality. Now, um, as the disease progresses, there are other severe physical declines that will come with other deteriorating cognitive function. So, as the disease progresses, the client will have more problems with loss of memory. It starts with just smaller things, forgetting about your most important thing, like common things, forgetting to clock out from work, going home. Forgetting to take your keys from the door or locking the door, locking the windows, getting your food ready. Instead of just common things, forgetfulness about common things, and it progresses into what? Into more serious things. Now, for Alzheimer's disease, um, we do what we call the mini mental state uh, mental state examination, the MMSE. We do M M S E, the mini mental state examination that's what we do to assess for the condition um we do other laboratory tests but there is no specific test to diagnose Alzheimer's disease um we might do other procedures like a mri ct scan uh cat scan pet scan we do all these things lumbar puncture to analyze the brain but they are not specific tests for Alzheimer's condition. For Alzheimer's, what is important on Alzheimer's is uh, the medication, the nursing management and other procedures that we use. Now, in Alzheimer's, um, let, let me just talk about the three stages I'm talking about in Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's has three stages. I'm talking about those three stages. In the first stage, <coughs> excuse me, which is the early stage. Now, in the early stage, at the beginning, the client will have normal function. There will be no impairment. Um, there will be no symptoms. The early stage will progress into the second stage in the first stage, which is the first early stage. The client will have other smaller changes. The client will sort of have, they'll be forgetful with common things like their glasses, their wallet, their credit card, going to the, going to the store, they forgot their credit card. Those are things that will start with. That is the earliest set of Alzheimer's disease. Those are the earliest symptoms you're going to see. Um, they're going to have 
they will have some people who interact with their co-workers. They might not understand a lot of things about work. They'll be forgetful. They will not be able to complete their, 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 their chores at work when it's at the early stage. Um, then it will progress into the into moderate stage. In the moderate stage or into the mild stage, in this second stage, which is the middle stage, the client going to have um we can detect that the client is not where the client is sick because in the middle stage or in the in the mild stage, the client will have this peculiarity of forgetfulness that might start to interfere the ADLs. So at that stage, the client will have difficulties performing their tasks at work. Organizing their office, doing their tasks at work becomes difficult for them at the second stage. At this stage, the client cannot recall important details such as address. So the client left from work and the client is going home, but the client cannot, the client wants to stop at the Walmart, but the client cannot remember where the Walmart is. And this is a place the client been there over thousands of times. The client lives not having a Walmart, but the client cannot remember the Walmart anymore. Or the client cannot remember the, the, the bypass route to get to their house. They took the bypass and they found themselves in another state. Then these are things that sort of happen to them in the middle stage. Then we can pick them and know that they are having some severe, they are having some problem. If they are in, uh, they cannot, they will become confused to time and places and they will be disoriented in the middle stage. Then if this is not taken care of, it progresses to the what? To the late stage. In the late stage, it becomes severe, it continues and it gets worse. That's when the client will lose awareness of recent events and their surroundings. Now, this is when the client will not remember their house. They will not remember their kids. They will not remember what they ate this morning. They will not remember what is even their full name. They will begin to forget those most peculiar information about themselves, their bio data, their addresses, where they live. They will forget about those things in the list stage. In the list stage, the client cannot respond to environmental stimuli, to speech. Control movement will be lost. The client will have the client will make words that, that, that you and I cannot recognize. At this stage, the client might have problem with ADLs. The client will need assistance to eat. They cannot they will forget to eat. They will forget to postpone in their mouth. So the client will need constant assistance to achieve this ADLs goal. And the client will have what we call ataxia. In the last stage, they're going to have ataxia. It is the point in which the client cannot have control over their extremities. They will lose control over their extremities. At this stage, they have become worse. So these are the stages when it comes to Alzheimer's disease and the symptoms of the client going to experience under here. Then uh, what are the nursing cares when a client is having Alzheimer's disease becomes my concern because in the end class, the English is going to ask us, what will the nurse do? A client has Alzheimer's. A client has been diagnosed. The client is forgetful. What will the nurse do? So that question, what will the nurse do to answer it, we have to know our um, nursing care. We want to assess the client's cognitive status. 
So to assess a client cognition or the client cognitive status, we must look at the client judgment, we must look at the client uh, uh, <coughs> memory, their cognitive, stats, uh, their cognitive status, and the client personality. Because we said in Alzheimer's condition, the client going to have changes in personality. That was one of the cardinal symptoms of Alzheimer. So when we're doing the assessment, we want to make sure we understand the client level of understanding about their personality. Um, we also want to initiate bowel and bladder program based on a set of schedule. When the client goes to the bathroom, when the client urinates, when the client passes to, when the client eats. Because at this point, the client will forget to do this thing. They will sit and have incontinence. They will have so many things going on. So we have to put in bladder and bowel program. So we put in bladder. So to implement bladder and bowel program. Bowel program for the client. These are things we do for our client at this stage. Um, the nurse also wants to encourage the client and the family to participate in Alzheimer's disease support group. We want to make sure we provide a safe environment for the client to do visual check, to check the client's test with, because the client will have all these impairment, cognitive impairment, we want to remove any denial item from the client's way. We want to provide frequent walks to reduce wandering. So, you hear this? We want to provide frequent walks to reduce wandering because one of the one of the problems of client with, 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 with Alzheimer is wandering. They wander a lot. It's in the ankles. Client with these conditions, they wander a lot, wandering, or we say wandering. So, how can we curtail? How can we remedy? The, 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 the concern about wandering. We have to make the client to walk around until they get tired. We have to walk them around, take walk with them. So if we walk with them around a lot, when they get back home, they will get tired. We wouldn't want to go around and walk around. Or else, they will keep wandering. And that's one of the concerns about clients who have Alzheimer's condition. We want to also maintain an adequate sleep schedule Monitor irregular sleep pattern and report to the HCP. We want to provide verbal and non-verbal ways to communicate with the client. We want to offer snacks or finger food if the client is unable to sit for long periods. It is important. Now, in the ankles, the ankles is not going to tell you, tell you these things in black and white. If the client is not taking the food, a client who has dementia, it's not sitting one place to eat the food. The client is refusing to eat the food. What would the nurse do? You want to provide snacks or finger food for the client. As the client walk, walks around, the client eats the finger food or the snack. It is a nursing uh, management for clients with Alzheimer's disease. We want to check the client's uh, skin breakdown weekly. We want to provide uh, music, craft, etc. for the client. That's why in our various workplaces in the group homes, the client can do art and craft. We do the client activities. The clients do current events. We put them on a round table. We do group therapy, group therapy for them. That's why every group homes, every group home has a therapist or has someone who would do activities who provide us. They are therapeutic. They are requirements for group homes for clients who have this condition.
And uh, so these are things we look out for the client. Want to evolve memory, want to provide a client memory training, want the client to reminisce with the client about the past. That's why we ask the client, uh, we ask the client some questions about the past. We remind them about the past. Do you know what happened on 9-11 in America, in the US? When you call 9-11, they'll, they'll be familiar with the date 9-11, but they might not have all the recollection of 9-11. So you have to remind them. 9-11 in the US was under attack. This happened, that happened, that was the biggest home test the US have ever, ever received from terrorists since uh, the Pearl Harbor, the Pearl Harbor uh, 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 attack. So you want to you, you, you remind the client the client will be reminded and you will discuss these things to reflect, to reminisce, to make the client to have reminisce, uh, to, to, for the client to reminisce on these things, on this part even. It is important for the for client who have these conditions. You want to avoid overstimulation. Keep the client in a quiet place. Avoid noisy area. You want to validate the client's therapy. <clears throat> the, do not argue with the client. This will lead to the, the client becoming upset. You want to promote self-care as long as possible. Assist the client with activities of daily life, of daily living. Speak to the client directly in short, concise sentences. Look the client face and maintain adequate facial contact to provide to talk to the client. You want to provide routine toileting schedule for the client. For the medication for this client with dementia, um, we. The most medication for clients who have this dementia condition attempt to target the behavioral or emotional problems such as the client anxiety, the client agitation, and the client combative or the client depression. So at this stage, most of the drugs the client will take, it is to manage the client behavioral symptoms, the client anxiety. If the client is having anxiety, give the client anti-anxiety medication. If the client is having behavior problem, give the client mood medication. And that's why you see clients who are in these mental, uh, who are in these group homes, someone can take some of those psychotropic medication because it helps them to want to demean their behavior when they're having behavior problems. Someone can take drugs that the client would take at the mental hospital, who, the clients who have problem with uh, mood or other or, 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 or psych disorders, they will take it because they are having psych symptoms like anxiety. So they, so they will take like Vestura or they will take Hydroxazine. Adivan, the other drugs they will take at the, at the sack home, they will take the same drugs at their group home because they, they are having some sack future in their disorders. So we'll see this and we'll know that uh, the client needs this medication. Um, Under here, for the Alzheimer's disease medication, uh, it helps to slow the course of the progression of the disease condition. It, it, it does not really stop it, but it slows the progression. So the goal is to slow the disease progression because the drugs will not stop it. It only slows it. Now, I'm saying this because we have to understand when a client is having Alzheimer's condition, what is the goal of, of the disease therapy? When a client is having, uh, in the case of Parkinson's disease, when a client on the medication, what is the goal of the medication? We have to know these things and know what... We are expecting if the client is on uh, liver dopa medication, if the client is on drugs for Alzheimer's and a medication, what is the goal of that treatment? We have to know it for the ankles. It is important. So for Alzheimer's condition, the drugs will stop the progress of the disease condition, not to cure it. Now, um, also the drugs will improve the client 
cognition, the client behavior, the client behavior and the client function. It helps to improve those things. That's why they will take those jobs for. Um, then the client, if the client fails to improve with one medication, that's when we do two or three drug therapy to still help the wife to stop the disease progression. Uh, one of those drugs we take is the donepizil. We talk about this medication when we're doing pharmacology. Donepizil, um, D-O-N-E-P-E-Z-I-L. Donepizil, it is a drug of choice for uh, Alzheimer's disease. This medication prevents the breakdown of acetylcholine, which increases the amount of acetylcholine available in the body. This results in increased nerve impulses at the nerve site. So in these conditions, in Alzheimer's, in Parkinson's disease, there is increased level of acetylcholine. So these drugs can help to prevent the breakdown of acetylcholine that might create, that, that, that might create huge impulses, which will give the symptoms of Alzheimer's or the symptoms of Parkinson's disease. So these drugs will help to prevent the breakdown of acetylcholine in our body. That's why they are being given. <clears throat> Sometimes we give cholinesterase. Uh, cholinesterase medication are also drugs for Alzheimer condition. It inhibits, uh, they are drugs that help to slow down the progress of the memory loss or the disease condition when the client is having these problems. So when we get this medication, we observe a frequent stools or stomach upset the client can have frequent stool. The client can have like diarrhea when the client have taken the, the donepizio or the cholinesterase. The client will have these symptoms. Um, we want to monitor the client for headache and dizziness because these are side because of medication. The client might have light headedness. We have to monitor for them when the client taking this. That's why in many cases these drugs are administered at their time. So you will see that a client who is on the Nepizil at Elwing will take it once a day at bedtime. So we give it at 8 p.m. or 6 p.m. medication next time when the client have taken in all their food, their snacks, then the client take the drugs and the client go to bed because it has so many interference with the client ADL. Um, it should be used with caution with clients who have COPD or asthma condition um, because they can they can worsen lungs problem. When you have this, uh, taking the donepizio or the cholinesterase, they can worsen lungs problem. Now, in this case, the end is gonna ask you, a client who has Parkinson's disease has been on the following medication, which of the drugs did that, uh, the nurse will question with this medication? Now, you have read that the client should take donepizio, but I also said that when you are getting donepizio, the client should not have COPD or asthmatic problems. So in, they will give you another, another exhibit in the end class with lab results or with the client history. On that exhibit of the client history, we will provide for you information about the client. And this information will contain that the client has COPD or the client has some lab results that have proven that the client has COPD. And this will be contraindicated and the nurse should question the donepizio with those other conditions the client might present with. So we have to think like, like nurses and behave like nurses. Then we have other therapy that the client might do when the client has Alzheimer's condition. 
the client can do other alternative therapy um, <clears throat> for women. Uh, we can do estrogen therapy, which can help to prevent Alzheimer's disease. But it is not useful in decreasing the effect when the client has the condition already. So this simply means um, for women who have who are at risk for the condition, we can give them they can do estrogen therapy. Um, under here, this hormone will help to stop. Uh, it will help to prevent the disease condition, but it does not. It, it, it does not arrest the situation if it if, if it's already occurring. That's how estrogen function for females who have the condition. Um, we give a herbal product called Jinko Bilba. We give Jinko. Jinko. So Jinko Baloba can be administered. You remember I talked about us looking at the herbal therapy in the Sunders. I sent you a list of herbal, herbal medication. We talk about Jinko. We talk about the ginseng. We talk about the ginger. We talk about the garlic. We talk about the St. John's words. Those information are important because these are approved medicinal products that we can also use in the hospital. So you have to know much about them. They are important. And uh, so also, uh, we can also provide, encourage the client and family to seek legal counsel regarding advanced directive, guardianship, or DPA, dual power attorney, when the client having this condition. Because at that point in time, the client cannot make informed decision. So at the beginning, at the earliest of this condition, the nurse must educate the client on having a living will or a guardianship because at that point the client is having the problem with their memory and once they are not aware they are not conscious they do not they do not have the level of from the, the, the LOC to maintain a lot of things indeed they need to have guardianship or a living will or they need to have a legal counsel or what we call healthcare practices that might come in to talk for them when they cannot make those informed decisions um then uh they need to have our social services that they will involve into that can help them to also make them lively and make them active in other groups any question on uh on practicing on on, on azama condition azama disease any question ms is also a neurological disease condition that typically results in impaired and worsened function of voluntary muscles. So when we have multiple sclerosis, our voluntary muscles movement become impaired. And uh, this condition is an autoimmune disorder. Now the word autoimmune simply means the body fight itself. It is not from outside the body will have some other effect that the body will attack itself and then there will be a disease condition. That's what we call autoimmune disease. So it is an autoimmune disease that affects the nerve cells in the brain and the spinal cord. Um, it is characterized by development of plaques in the white matter of the central nervous system. There will be plaques development in the white matter of the central nervous system. There are three areas we call the dura matter, 
the pia matter and uh, the arachnoid matters one of those areas you have the white matter that's where there will be plaques formation that will lead to multiple sclerosis um there are several possible causes of multiple sclerosis but the most common one is relapsing and remitting um, the disease is marked by relapses and remission that might not return the client to his or her previous baseline of level of functioning. So the client might have it once or twice, or they might have several relapses or remissions that might make another return to their previous uh, level of functioning. Um, over time, the client can eventually progress to point of quadriplegia, wherein the client would not be able to have any control over their full extremities. So if this condition is not managed, if it is not arrested, the client will progress into multiple uh, extremity impairment. They cannot move their both upper and lower extremity, which will lead to what we call quadriplegia. Um, MS is a disease with no known cure. Um, it progresses in severity over time. There are initial findings that can be so vague that uh, the disease diagnosis is not made for several years. Sometimes it is not made until the patient is there. Sometimes it is made when the patient's disease condition has already progressed beyond expectation. That's when the diagnosis can be made. Um, so there are some form of the disease that are progressive, that are very aggressive, and some have a short lifespan. And uh, in most cases, the life expectancy is not affected by the disease condition, but it might just affect your movement and other things. That's what happened. And I work with a client who had MS, a young client that was so bad. And uh, at the end of the day, he had to like, lose his life because he could not cope with uh, the emotional, the emotional stress that came, the stress that came with the condition. So sometimes it might not be it that's going to kill the client, but the stress that come with it or the or problem that come with the condition as a young person, it might be what that might lead to your early death. <clears throat> there are several risk factors, which include viral or infectious agents in the body, emotional problem, pregnancy, fatigue, a lot of things that put stress on our mind can expose us to multiple sclerosis. And that's why when you have stressful event, you have a stressful job, stressful day, you want to like breathe out and take a rest and make sure that you breathe out because these things can affect us as humans. You want to take like clown taking hot shower. You took down, you don't want to take shower every day with hot shower because the hot bath can also affect our nerves and our nerves cells, our neurons are affected by this by constant taking shower of hot, 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 hot water. Sometimes that's why we have what we call the therapy. So in the cryotherapy, you see someone jogging in the snow. Someone took take off their shirts and they're running in the snow. Those are therapeutic procedures we do to help us to keep ourselves fit, uh, to keep ourselves healthy. It is very important. When a client has multiple sclerosis, um, the client will have fatigue of the lower extremities. The client will have pains and paresthesia. So the client is going to have pains and paresthesia. They will have pains. The client can have paresthesia in here. Uh, the client can also have diplopia. The client can have diplopia. They will have changes in vision. That's what we call diplopia. They will have changes in their vision. 
um, they will have decreased visual equity. So they're going to have, under here, they will have decreased visual equity under here when they have this diplopia. The client going to also have called the Othoff sign. The Othoff is U H T O F F. Othoff sign. What's the Othoff? What's the Othoff sign? It's U H T O F F. Othoff. Othoff sign. You can pronounce it the best way you can pronounce it. But uh, this is when there is a temporary worsening of vision and other neurological function. Commonly seen in clients who have been who, who have who have been or who is predisposed to the condition. If the client is having a visual problem that that is that uh, that, that, that that has been the cause of this condition, where the client vision is being is being decreased or the client is losing his vision slowly. Um, in this case, it's all called the half time. So it's like uh, you are squatting. Maybe you squatted for a while. When you woke up from your squatting position and your eyes got dark. So when that started happening to you faster, meaning you are having those are those are those are signs of the multiple sclerosis. It is what we call the out the out of sign. U H T O F F out of sign. So out of sign is you squatted for a while, or you were squatting or you were hanging for a while, and you woke up from that position and your eyes got dark. If it happens to you frequently, that's what we call the octave sign when it comes to multiple sclerosis symptoms. So now the client might have vertigo, tinnitus, ringing bell in the ear. They're going to have this symptom like that. Sometimes they can have dysphagia. They're going to have dysphagia in the, in, as a symptom for multiple sclerosis. Um, they're going to have ataxia, weakness in the muscles. They're going to have muscles spasticity. The muscle becomes spasmic. Sometimes they're going to have nystagmus. They will have nystagmus of the eyes. They're going to have bowel dysfunction. They might have fecal incontinence, or they might have urinary incontinence or urinary retention, or they might have constipation due to the condition. They're going to have some other bladder problem. They're going to have bladder urgency, nocturia. They might have like a areflexia of the bladder. They might have cognitive changes, memory loss. They're going to have Impaired judgment, they're going to have sexual dysfunction. Men would not have sex, they're going to be impotent due to these con this, this, they are due to the conditions of multiple sclerosis. That's why it is called multiple sclerosis. It affects multiple body parts or body organs, make them very much inactive, uh, inactive and make them to be impaired. These are things that are going to happen for this condition. Uh, the number one test we think on to do is to do. Cerebral spinal fluid analysis. We we'll do a spinal type, then we analyze the cerebral spinal fluid, which will reveal an elevated protein levels, or it might reveal increased white blood cells in the blood. These are two cardinal signs. When we we'll do the spinal type to do spinal fluid analysis, we we'll see these two lab tests elevated the protein. That of the WBT will be elevated under here. The client can also do other, other, other procedures like MRI, magnetic resonance imaging, which will reveal the plaques. Remember, we said the condition is kind of about plaques formation in the brain, right? So, if we do the MRI, uh, actually, to, to do for me, MRI, what is to look at MRI for me? Uh, so, if we do the MRI, the MRI will show plaques. There will be plaques 
in the brain. So the plex would be seen by the MRI, the magnetic resonant imaging. So under here, um, we'll do, it will reveal plex in the client brains and the spinal spinal cord. We said this condition is carried out by plex in the brain or in the spinal cord. So the MRI will detect and show us the plex in the client brain. It is the most diagnostic or reliable diagnostic procedure for this particular multiple sclerosis. Um, for this condition, the nursing management under here, we want to monitor the client, the client visual equity. So everything that, the, that this condition will affect, they can name the symptoms that you want to monitor them. We said the client will have decreased visual equity, when the client will have diplopia. So when the client is having diplopia, I want to monitor the client visual equity. We want to make sure the client, we said the client might have poor speech, dysphagia, dysphagia, and the client, so we want to monitor the client's speech pattern. We want to look at the client's swallowing activities. We want to look at the client's skin integrity. And uh, <clears throat> this condition, the client can have debilitating symptoms. So one of the scores, coping mechanism of the family. That's what I said. A young guy who I used to work with, who's, who died, he had this condition, but he could not cope with the symptom because he was frustrated about life and he felt different and his life changed. And that was what exactly that killed him. So the client will have different mindset. So the parents and the client along with the nurses or the nurse need to sit down and discuss Cause coping mechanism with this about this condition. Um, encourage the client to taking fluids. Um, you want to monitor the client cognitive changes. You want to apply eye patches to the client. If the client has diplopia, you want to apply eye patches to the client eyes. Um, you want to also let the client to exercise to avoid overheating. So in this condition, the client might be exposed to cold but not heat. Because heat will only worsen the condition, but cold can help to alleviate some of the symptoms. That's what I said. I talked about cryotherapy, about the cold or the ice. I talked about that. Now, um, so in a sense, sonas are not to be done in this condition, but we can do cryotherapy. Sonas are like using heat on the body. No, in this condition we do not, but cryotherapy will use cold. So we can do cryotherapy, but not sonas in this condition. Um, we also promote and maintain safe home for the client. After the client lives in the hospital for some time, the client will be discharged home. The client will need assistance. The client will become dependent on individuals for his or her ADL. That's why the client will need someone to be a help to the client. The client take some medications that might help the client, but these drugs are not like 100%, but they are just there to, to manage the symptoms. The client can take um, drugs like uh, cyclosporines, azithioprine. The client can take azithioprine, azithioprine, or the client can take cyclosporine, cyclosporine. The client can take cyclosporine. The client can take these drugs to help them. The client can take prenicillin. Prenicillin can be taken. Look at this drug for this class of this medication. The client can take dantrolene. The client can take dantrolene. Look at these drugs. We, 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 we don't have them in mass in pharmacology. Just look at them. Just look them up. Dantrolene. The client can also take a baclofen. 
the client can take baclofen for this for this for, for this condition, and the client can also take diazepam. The client can take diazepam. Diazepam. So the client can take diazepam, azithromycin, azithromycin, cyclosporine medications, prednisolone, dantrolene, and baclofen for this particular multiple sclerosis condition. So you can. So you all look at it and look at the reason why we want to administer prednisolone when a client has multiple sclerosis. The reason why we want to administer uh, dantrolene when a client has multiple sclerosis. You look at it and tell and look at it. Sometimes we can also administer carbamazepines, anticonvulsant for the paresthesia. We can administer ducosate. You remember we said that uh, the client will have constipation. So if the client has uh, Constipation will give docosate for as two softener I use when client having constipation. We can give propantiline, which is good for bladder dysfunction. So we say the client can have bladder dysfunction, uh, problems. So in this case, the client can take an uh, uh, anti agent to help them to effectuate the bladder. The client can take propanolol and clonazepines, which are bitter blockers and benzodiazepine on the client having tremors. So the client can take bitter blockers and the client can take um, the client can take benzodiazepines or benzo medication when the client is having tremors. So tremors can be uh, can be eased with the benzos and that of the wire and that of the uh, bitter blockers. This is an important thing. The client can take interferon beta. Interferon beta I use for relapses to prevent, because we said this condition, remember, we said this condition is marked by remission and relapses. So it might come and go, come and go. So in this case, when the client has it for the first time, the client might take a lifelong interferon beta, which is an immune modulators that prevent the relapses of the condition. So all these drugs I named to you, this one, look them up and tell me why we want to administer diazepine in all right, I already talked about that. Why we administer cyclosporines, prednisolone, dantrolene, baclofen when the client has multiple sclerosis. So you tell me, like I said, the, the propanol law and that of the clonazepines, um, they can be used for what? Tremors. So that's a pain can be used for tremors in this condition. So you tell me what, why are these other drugs should be, why these others should be used in this condition? Any condition? Any question? I'm sorry. Any, any question? So headache can be acute or chronic. It could be life-threatening. Or it could be short term or temporary. Headaches are common occurrence and they affect individuals of all ages. Headache can be linked to cold condition or it could be linked to allergies, stress, or muscle tension. All these things can cause headache to the client. So we have two categories of headache we have primary headaches. And we have secondary headaches. So primary headaches 
uh, they have no identifiable organic cause or causes. So they include migraine headaches, tension headaches, cluster headaches. Those are primary headaches. They do not have any uh, specific cause or causes. They can be managed in a primary care setting. Then we have secondary headaches. In secondary headaches, it is where there are organic causes, such as there's a brain tumor that is causing the headache, or there is a brain aneurysm that is causing the headache, or there is something that is an underlying cause or causes that are causing us to have headache. In such a condition, it needs, it needs extensive investigation. That's when we do more assessment when we're having these headaches. So under here, we look at cluster headaches, we look at migraine headaches are the most important one I want, I want us to talk about. Um, for headache as a whole, when a client has migraine, let's start with migraine headaches. So in migraine headache, um, migraine headache. So in migraine headache, um, the, it, it, it falls on a for on a primary headache. There is not a known cause that can cause migraine headache. So migraine headache, the client going to have photophobia. They will have fear for light. So that's why when the client has a migraine headache, doctor asks you, "I'm having a headache, a, a severe headache. When do you feel the headache? When lights, when you put the light, when you switch the lights on, do you really feel the headache? How do you feel when light is on?" Because they want to know the origin of the headache, what causing the headache, they want to know how is it treating you. Or the client can have what we call photophobia. Um, the client can have photophobia, photophobia, fear of light. The client can have phonophobia, phonophobia. Phonophobia is fear of sound. When, when, it, when, when there's a sound, when there's loud noise, the client can have headache irritating them. The client can have Stress and anxiety can cause uh, can be due to migraine headache. The client can have unilateral pains behind the eyes or the ear. They will have pains behind the eye or behind the ear. Those are signs of migraine headaches. The client can also have um, alteration in the ADLs for at least seven, four to seven two hours due to the headaches. And the client can have similar symptoms that are similar to other headaches that the client might experience that are not migraine. So the client will have different symptoms of different headache conditions that might come with migraine. Now, in migraine headache, migraine headaches are classified according to categories and stages. This is important for the ankles. So in migraine headaches, we classify migraine headache according to the stages and classes. Now, we have the one that comes with aura, migraine headache with aura, with aura, they have some that come with aura and some that come without aura. Now, aura means um, it comes with some other symptoms, some other features that we can uh, we can sense and we can know that we're about to have headache. That's the kind of what we call the aura. Now, in migraine headache of aura, it has prodromal stage. It has the aura stage development, the second stage, the third stage, and it has the recovery stage those are not important just just know that those are the category now the one that comes with all aura is the most common one 
So the one that comes with aura is the classic migraine. The one that comes with aura is the common migraine. So in this common migraine, the client can have photophobia, the client can have phonophobia, the client can have nausea, they might have vomiting, it gets worsened with activities. When the client is involved into activities, the headache gets worsened. Um, then, then we have uh, the migraine that is atypical. So you have the one with aura, which is called a classic migraine, migraine with aura, which is called a common migraine, and we have the atypical migraine. Now, this one has what we call the status migraineus. So in this third one, we'll have status migraineus, status migraineus, or migraineus, status migraineus, in the third one. In this status migraineus, the headache will last more than 72 hours. Status migraineus. Remember what we about status epilepticus. We said in status epilepticus, the seizure lasts for more than five minutes. Back to back seizure that lasts more than five minutes, it becomes status epilepticus. It is a medical emergency. So we can have status, status migraineus, a headache that lasts for more than 72 hours. Um, we're going to have that. Now, it often occurs early in the morning during the period of stress. Um, it also comes in, uh, it affects the client. Um, it can't, it can't, and does not go away. It's still you forever for three days. Treatment, you have a headache, taking drugs, it cannot help you. That's what happened. That is the atypical, which we call the status migraineous headache. Now, under here, um, for migraine, we have two distinct therapies that I want, I'm concerned about. We do the abortive therapy for migraine. We do for migraine headache, we do abortive therapy. Um, the first one is we do abortive therapy for migraine. That's the first one. Now, in the abortive therapy for migraine, we alleviate the pain during the aura or soon the pain, the headache starts. So, what like I said, the aura is a situation that exposes the client to get to know that the client is about to have headache. So the aura comes before the, the headache condition. The, the aura is like a communication that tells you that you're about to have headache. So in the abortive therapy, we implement the therapy as soon as the patient experiences the aura or as soon as the, the headache starts, then we implement the abortive therapy. So in this abortive therapy, uh, for mild migraine, the client can take any NSAID medication, ibuprofens, Naprosins, they can take acetaminophens, they can take any over-the-counter medication that will help to stop the migraine. That is for the mild area. The client can also take uh, antiemetics to stop the nausea because in migraine, the client will have nausea. Um, then we have the severe migraine. So for the abortive therapy, the client might have severe migraine headache. In a severe migraine headache, under the abortive therapy, um, the client can take uh, triptans medication. Triptans. So the client can take triptans medication. Triptans. So these triptans medications, they include, you have like a, you have like a, the zoomic triptan. 
Zomitriptin, Z-O-L-M-R-T-R-I-P-T-A-N. Zomitriptin, it is a treatment medication. You can read on the treptin's medication. The client can take Zomitriptin preparation. The client can take Sumatriptin. It's also an example. Sumatriptin, Sumatriptin. Uh, it's an example of the treptin medication. The client can take Sumatriptin medication. The client can also take Electriptin, E-L-E-T-R-I-P-T-A-N, Electriptin. They can take this preparation. Uh, they can produce vasoconstrictive effect um, to alleviate the headache. That's how they work. The client can also take a gotamine preparation. The client can take a gotamine, a gotamine preparation. It also helps to curtail the headache. A gotamine preparation. You can look at you can look up these preparations. Um, for this medication, um, it narrows the blood vessels and reduces inflammation. That's why it does. So now the client can take azometat, azom, uh, azometeptin. is I S O M E T H E P T E N E. Azometeptin. The client can take azomitepin medication also in this in this case. Um, for this medication, we can take it if other drugs do not work. It is high; it's one of the high classes of headache medication. So if other drugs cannot work, this can work for us. Um, you want to keep uh, then after the abortive therapy. We can also carry on the second therapy, which is the preventive therapy. So the client can also do a preventive therapy. So the preventive therapy, under here, um, it is for frequent headache when other therapies are ineffective. So since we cannot wait to implement the abortive therapy when the headache has come or when there's an aura, so we want to implement preventive therapies. For the preventive therapies, we can use um, two or more different drugs combined. For example, we can combine an NSAID medication plus a beta blocker as a headache preventive medication. So if you have a severe headache, it can stop. So you can take a naprosine, you can take a naprosine plus propanolol, propanolol, it can give you a better result. Or you can take ibuprofen plus propanolol to give you a better effect of the headache or to prevent the headache from occurring. That's what happened in there. So we can also give um, calcium kind of blockers with NSAID medication. We can give other anti-epidemic medications with uh, other medication to prevent the headache. Like you can give the the um, uh, what's the drug's name? It's a drugs. Um, it's a drugs. Uh, Depakote. Okay, yeah, we can give Depakote. Depa we administer Depakote along with uh, along with uh, other medication like NSAID drugs to prevent migraine headache. We can also give the topiramate. 
to pyramid medication to pyramid can also be administered along with NSAID to prevent headache or migraine headache. So this is where we're just providing medium to prevent the headache from occurring. Um, for, for nursing education, client education, you want to keep a diary to record the headache patterns and the triggers. When the headache occurs, what were you doing, what triggered the headache, you want to remember all those things and do a thorough neurological disturbance or uh, neurological test. You want to remain in a dark, cold, quiet environment because light sounds can irritate, can stimulate and irritate headache when you have it. Um, you want to make sure, you want to elevate the head of the bed as desired. Women over 50 years stand the risk for cardiovascular disease and stroke when they are having severe headache. Um, you want to review the trigger and avoid the trigger. You want to educate about food with tyramines. So food with tyramines will only increase the headache. Those food include pickles and caffeine. So tyramine food can increase the headache. So when you have migraine headache, you do not want to consume any food that contains tyramine. Those food include caffeine, pickles, beer, wine, aged cheese, artificial sweetness, and other food with MSG or preservatives. You want to avoid those food. Those food contain tyramine. And these things, we have to understand them. A client is in room 64. The client is complaining of headache. And the client cannot see light. The client complains that the client becomes irritated with sound. The, meaning the client having photophobia. The client requests for food. It is breakfast time. What food plate would the nurse question or would the nurse see as a contraindication to the client in room 64? A plate number one has a cup of coffee, iced coffee. With cream and sugar, it has a wheat toast bread. They'll label all these things to you in the end class. And your mind as a nerve should think that any food group that contains tyramine, it is not to be served with a client who has migraine headache. Then uh, we want to review the client. We want to review the client. We, we, we want to review the client menstrual, uh, the client menstrual uh, cycle patterns and hormones fluctuation. One of the scores avoiding intense environmental odors, perfumes, and tobacco smoke. We want to educate the client about complementary and alternative therapies. The client should be referred to yoga, medita uh, medita uh, meditation. Uh, tai Chi, exercise, biofeedbacks, massage for relaxation and to alleviate muscle tension. All these things can help the client. The client can be referred to acupuncture and acupressure therapy, which can be helpful in pain management. The client can also take other herbal remedies and nutritional supplements that can be I can help to relieve the client's symptom, and the client should avoid any herbal therapist, any nutritional supplement that will increase the client headache. They will talk about the tyramines. Then we we'll look at the cluster headache. Now, in cluster headache, 
that's, that's the laugh from my head. I want to talk about full close for headache and take our break. Cluster headache. Um, it is a brief, intense headache that is unilateral. It is non-troubling pain that lasts for 30 minutes to two hours. Um, it can radiate to the forehead, to the temple, and to the cheeks. That's cluster headache. So understand the pattern. It is a, it is an intense, unilateral, non-troubling pain that lasts for 30 minutes to two hours. It can radiate to the forehead, to the temporal area. It also radiates towards the cheeks. It happens to the client. It occurs about the same time, four to 12 weeks in a row. So the same time of occurring of the headache can tell us um, a lot about the headache history when it comes to assessment of headache. That I will ask you, you having a headache, when, what time of day do you have this headache? Oh, I always have my headache at bedtime. Every night at 11 p.m. when I'm about to go to bed, that's why I have the headache. And I've been having it for the past four weeks, for the past 12 weeks. So the duration, every every time, it lasts for two hours. It wouldn't go for other two hours. For the past one month, I've had this headache. And you see, you will not understand the importance of, 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 of neurosurgeons um, when it comes to headache and treatment until you have headache in this country. I remember I used to have headache, severe headache, for more than one month. And I called to make an appointment to see a headache specialist. I was in the list for three months. I had to pay extra, I paid like four hundred fifty dollars to see a headache specialist at, uh, at Jefferson in Philadelphia. So that's how important these things are. If you, if you have not had the condition, you wouldn't know how important they are. There are people in line for headache with unknown, unknown origin. I did the scan. I did everything just to get seen. And I think I was having some hypochondriasis because every time someone has a particular condition, if I see the person, I talk to the person, I also want to start to develop the symptom of that condition. That's what happened to me. So I had to go to work one day. I created a scene that indeed I'm having a headache. This is the worst headache of my life, and I want to do a scan. And I did a scan. The scan came back negative, and that was how the headache went away. So there are a lot of things sometimes it happens in our surrounding. If we've not experienced it, we don't understand how bad they are. One is headache. So we want to provide more frequent uh, during the... Uh, so the headache can come in... The, the coastal headache can occur during fall and spring season. It has no warning signs. Unlike the migraine headache, the migraine headache sometimes can have aura, which is a warning sign. Cluster headaches do not have warning signs. They are less common than migraines. Men between the ages 20 to 50 of age are at risk for cluster headaches. The client will have facial sweating when they have cluster headache, unlike migraine headache. They're going to have dropping of the eyelid and the eyelid edema when they have cluster headache. They're going to have facial pallor or flushing of the face. They're going to have bradycardia. They're going to have nausea. And they're going to have vomiting. They're going to have pacing, walking up and down the hallway in their room when they have cluster headache. It's unbearable. It's kind of a very strong. For the medication, we treat them with all the same drugs we treat migraine headache with. So we can we use the triptines. Triptines can be used for cluster headaches. So you want to read on triptines medication for headache. They have a lot of information on them on the internet. We can also get the agotamines operations for cluster headache. We give anti-epileptic medication, AEDs, 
We can administer ADs for cluster headaches. We can also give calcium canal blockers for, for cluster headaches. We can give corticosteroids for cluster headaches. We can give over-the-counter over or over-the-counter uh, capsaicin medication. Um, it is called over-the-counter capsaicin. You can read on it. We call it over-the-counter cap um, capsaicin. Capsaicin for headache. You can look it up. Over-the-counter capsaicin for headache. Um, you can also look, we can also give melatonin for headache and we can give glucose, uh, glucosamines. Glucosamines can be given for a headache. Glucosamines. These are all drugs we give for cluster headache. You can read on them how do they treat cluster headache. And uh, we want to always have O2 at home when the client is having cluster headaches. Because sometimes if it's severe, the client might be deprived from O2 delivery and the client might have decreased perfusion. So we can help the client with, with at least uh, 2 liter of many of 12 liter per minute for 15 to 20 minutes at the onset of the headache, which can provide relief within 15 minutes. So when we give O2, they also relieve headache for a short time. Any question? So we'll take a five-minute break and come back. Now, nursing care for clients who have sensory neurosyndrome disorder also has to do with head injuries. Uh, when it comes to head injuries, they are classified as either open head injury or closed head injuries. So in open head injury, um, the integrity of the skull is compromised. So we have uh, one open head injury and we have closed head injury. Now, whether it's open or closed hair injury, there's an injury occurring. In the open hair injury, there is a break in the integrity of the skull. Um, that's what we call open hair injury. So in open hair injury, there is either a blunt force that has caused trauma to the head, or there is a penetrating force that has caused injury in the open hair injury. Then for the closed head injury, it occurs when there is a blunt trauma that has that that that, that causes acceleration of the head and then deceleration of or hits a station object. So the hair something could be moving and hit the head, or the head moving and hit something like a station that can cause head injury, a close head injury. Head injuries are classified as mild head injuries, moderate head injuries. Or severe head injury, but it all depends on the on the glycocoma scale rating. Remember talk about talk about GCS rating. So it is it is dependent upon the GCS rating that we can consider a head injury to be severe, mild, or moderate. And uh, the time of the injury was the client conscious or unconscious. That's how we classify the head injuries. Now, we have various types of brain injuries. This brain injuries type, I will talk about them in just a short, in a brief manner. And uh, I will tell you what each one of them is. Now, we have concussion. So, the first one is concussion. 
Now, in concussion, it's also a brain injury. Um, so brain injury include concussion, contusion, diffuse, azona injuries, and intracranial hemorrhage. Those are the kind of brain injuries we're going to talk about today. Now, in the first one, which we call concussion, when there's a concussion brain injury, there is a mild traumatic brain injury. It's a mild traumatic brain injury, which we call concussion. In concussion, it occurs after the head, after a head trauma that results in the change in the client neural function. The client neural function become will change when there's a concussion. Um, under here, um, there is no identified brain damage and usually resolve within 72 hours. In concussion, there is no one part of the brain that is damaged, but it's like the brain shakes. The brain, the head hits something, and the entire brain feature will shake, and there will be some symptoms for the next 72 hours. Now, in concussion, my concern is post-concussion syndrome. What happens after concussion? In post-concussion syndrome, it includes persistence of cognitive and physical symptoms for an unknown period of time. So when somebody, when somebody have con concussion, sometimes they might not have severe symptoms, but they might have these moderate or mild symptoms coming in. That they might have so often they cannot have us. Light will hurt their eyes, they cannot focus, they cannot take a test, and they cannot concentrate. These things will happen to the client when you have concussion. But these are post-concussion symptoms that are going to happen to the client. <clears throat> now, then we have contusion. The second one is contusion. Now, in contusion, what happens in contusion? In contusion, the brain is bruised. There, is a, there, there are bruises on the brain. Um, there's a, the brain is bruised and the client has a period of unconsciousness. That is linked, uh, that is that is linked with stupor or confusion. So under here, the client will have stupor. The client will become stupors, or the client will have some level of confusion. In the case of a contusion, so when there's a contusion, remember in contusion the client will have a bruise. There will be a bruise on the brain. The brain bruise. Now when there's a bruise on the brain. The brain other the client becomes stuporous or they become confused. They will have alteration in level of consciousness in contusion. Now, then we have diffuse axonal injury. The client might have the third brain injury, which is called uh, diffuse. The client might have diffuse axonal brain injury. Now, in this condition, uh, it is a widespread injury that occurs to the brain. It results in coma and in severe head injury. So when this happens, the client will have the client will go into coma and there will be a severe head injury. There will be coma and the client will have severe head injury under here. The client will have that. Um, that is about diffuse adrenal injury. I, I, I don't want you to know that. And the last one is Intracranial hemorrhage. The client can have intracranial hemorrhage under here. Now, under here, the client will have intracranial hemorrhage, which is the last type of our brain injury. 
In intracranial hemorrhage, it occurs in the epidural era, it occurs in the in the uh in the subdural era, and it also occurs in the intracerebral era. So for the for this particular intracranial injury, it occurs in three areas. One, it occurs in the epidural era of the brain, epidural, it occurs in the um subdural era, in the subdural era. And it also occur in the intracerebral, uh, intracerebral era, intracerebral era of the brain. So that's why we need to know about these hair injuries. Know about con concussion, contusion, diffuse esophageal problem, and the intracranial hemorrhage. Now, on here, so these are what we call um, the types of brain in uh, brain injuries. I, want, I don't want to know to have an idea on that. Um, what is important on here is um, when a client has these conditions, when a client have these conditions, um, there will uh, sometimes there will be a presence of alcohol or some drugs at the time of injury. The client can have amnesia. Amnesia means there is a memory loss before or after the injuries. Sometimes the client will have memory loss after the injury. Sometimes the client can become unconscious or the client might lose consciousness um sometimes there is csf leakage so the client will have leakage of csf from the nose or from the ear which can indicate a basilar skull fracture and then uh how do we know that the client is having uh spinal cord uh, spinal fluid leakage is by doing spinal fluid tests we, we, we do a test we test the when the client has a head injury and the client has fluid coming from the ear or the nose, we do a glucose test. We do a test with the fluid. Now, the brain tissue, the brain fluid or the brain contains glucose. So we we'll start the fluid, the leakage or the drainage from the ear or the nose will contain glucose in it. That means the client is leaking cerebral spinal fluid. When there's a glucose tester in the fluid coming from the client uh, ear or the client nose, is that then the client is having what we call basilar fracture and there will be glucose present in that fluid. It means the client having CSF leakage. We can also test um, for the presence of glucose by assessing for the presence of a hollow sign by a clear yellow surrounding a drop of blood when drainage is placed on the piece of gauze. So we'll put the drainage also on the piece of gauze and there will be a yellow hollow, a hollow a halo will be surrounded on that fluid. So this is the gauze, and you have the fluid here. There'll be a yellow round things around the fluid. That means that's the, this halo around the, the fluid on the gauze is an indication that there's, there's a CSF leakage. That's what happened in it. So there are two ways we do. I'll test for the glucose, or we can test it by putting the fluid on the gauze, and it will tell that, the, that there's a leakage in there. Um, so we can look at that also then we also make sure and um, we look out for the symptoms of increased intracranial pressure you know the symptom already severe headache nausea vomiting um we see all these things in there um the client can become restless the client will become unconscious or the client will have decreased level of consciousness the client will become everything but the client can have dilated or pinpointed pupils when the client have uh, this hair injury. 
they will have pimpanter pupil or they will have non-reactive pupil. That's why we'll do the neural test, we'll do the perla. The pupils is uh we'll do it and see whether it is round, is reactive to light and light and accommodation. Would we'll see whether it is normal. If it is normal, sometimes it's normal, but in this case, it might be non-reactive. Or sometimes the client might have a dilated pupil or they might have a pinpointed pupils in the case of hair injury. Um, we look at the cranial nerve dysfunction. There will be some cranial nerve dysfunction. There will be an alteration in the client breathing pattern. There will be a change stroke breathing when the client has uh, this head injuries. There will be alteration in the client's central neurogenic hyperventilation. There will be apnea. There will be deterioration in the client motor functions. The client will start to have flaccid or decorticate or decerebrate posture of the extremities. We know what decerebrate and decorticate are already. We know them. So the client can have a cushion triage, uh, a cushion triad, which is a late finding. Cushion, the client can have cushion, um, cushion triad which is the late findings for hair injuries. Now, in the cushion find, in the cushions triad, it is a late find that is characterized by severe hypertension with widening of pore pressure. So the client will have a cushion triad, meaning this means the client will have increased hypertension and there will be a wide pulse pressure. What's how do we get pore pressure? We, we, uh, we subtract Diastolic from, from systolic, the value is what we call the pulse pressure. So there will be a huge pulse pressure difference between there. And the client can have bradycardia. The client can also have seizure when the client has hair injuries. These are things the client going to have when the client having this uh, when the client is having hair injury. So um, what is important on here is also um, we can do for the client some, some laboratory tests. We do the client ABGs, blood glucose levels, electrolyte levels, serum and urine osmolality. We do the client cause a uh, toxicology screen and EKG. We can monitor the client's seizure medication and blood level of the seizure medication. We do the CBC with differentials. We can do this test for the client to just make sure that what we are diagnosing is exactly what we are having in there. Um, we can do cervical spine things to diagnose a cervical spine injuries. We can do the CT scan to uh, we can do MRI without contrast if it is indicated in this condition. And we can do we can calculate the cerebral perfusion using the ICP monitoring. You remember we did ICP monitoring when we just did it at the beginning of this course. We said we're doing this procedure because these are procedures we do for condition in the system. So we did the ICP monitor I talked about in our first audio, our first lecture for the system. It is in the, if you forgot it, go back and listen to what is uh, ICP monitoring. There are numbers I want to remember those, those numbers. Um, so for the nurse, you want to monitor the client respiratory status. You want to make sure you look at the client GCS, the glycocoma scale is important in here. Um, so the brain is the depending upon O2 to maintain function and has a little reserve available. If uh, untreated hypoxia leads to brain injury or brain death, if the brain has been denied of O2 for up to three to five minutes, it leads to brain death. 
So once we're having hypoxia, where there's no O2 going to the brain, the client might be having a, the client might have brain death in three, in three to five minutes. We want to also look at the cranial nerve function, the eyes blink response, the gag reflex, um, the tongue and the shoulder movement. Those are all cranial nerve functions. The blink reflex, the gag reflex, the uh, the blinking of the eye. Those are all the, the those are all the, the, for the shoulder movement of the shoulder. That's cranial nerve eleven. You can check that. The blinking reflex. That's cranial nerve two. The optic nerve. These are things we can look out for the client when the client has hair injury to see why they are all in place. Um, we want to support the client and the family on these things. We want to assess the pupil side because we said the pupils could be di uh, dilated or it could be pinpointed or it could be inactive. So we want to check the pupil size to know whether perla is correct, P-E-R-R-L-A, whether perla is in range or it is out of range. I want to look at bilateral sensory and motor responses. We want to check the client increase intracranial pressure because when there's a head injury, the ICP becomes affected uh, by the head injury. We want to monitor the client by putting screws, sensors, bore holes into the client ventricles, into the client's subarachnoid area, the epidural area, the subdural spaces. These are areas that will give us adequate range or adequate value of the client increase intracranial pressure. In this case, we know that our normal range in this case should be between 10 to 15 for the ICP. Anything above this is a problem. Anything below, the, below this is a problem. So that should be the range for the ICP under here. Um, the ICP can be increased by when the client has hypercabia increased level of CO2 within the blood. It can increase the ICP. It can also be increased by endotracheal or oral tracheal suctioning. That's why when the client is having hair injury, the client having uh, fluid coming from the leakage coming from the nose or the ear, we do not suction because we might be suctioning the wire, the CSF, which is not good for this for the client. We want to also maintain the client or prevent them from coughing as they cough. What happened to coughing? Coughing can increase the intra the, the, the intracranial pressure, which will also create a problem for the client. We want to make sure there's an extreme neck or hip flexion. We want to maintain the hair of the bed at at least. 30 degree angle, we want to increase uh, increasing intra-abdominal pressure can also uh, uh, can also increase the intracranial pressure. Uh, Vasava maneuver can also uh, want to restrict clothing and restrict vasava maneuver. Distance can increase the can increase the ICP. Um, want to administer O2 as indicated um, to lower the level of a PaO2. Um, once it's above 60, we want to administer O2. We want to make sure to keep the client immobilized for two hours on a footboard, on a splint, until we get to a, to a medical facility. We want to provide brief periods of hyperventilation for the individual client can be can use for up to 24 hours following injury to, to help lower the ICP. During the first 24 hours, Hyperventilation can cause cerebral vessel constriction, so we should be careful of that, which can also cause ischemia because there will be blood deprived from going to that portion of the brain, which can cause ischemia, which can also cause stroke for the patient. These are things we do. Then, medication-wise, the client will take a monitor. You remember we talked about the various kinds of uh, diuretics when we were doing pharmacology. 
we said uh, there are four categories of diuretics. We talked about mannitol. We said the medication mannitol is what we call osmotic diuretic. It is an osmotic diuretic. That means it is an opposite of the potassium sparing diuretics. So the opposite job of potassium sparing diuretics is what these drugs will do for the client. So this is this drug is mainly given when there is head injury, head tumor, increased intracranial pressure above 15 millimeter per mercury will serve monitor. So monitor can be served in here. It is an osmotic diuretics. It can really help in the, in the case. Um, it will help to reduce the cerebral edema. Um, it also helps to decrease the increased intracranial pressure and it draws fluid. Um, it draws the it draws um, fluid from the brain into the blood. Now, want to administer IV to treat. It's given IV to treat the acute cerebral edema. Want to insert indwelling urinary character to monitor fluid and renal status. Want to monitor urine osmolality. Want to monitor serum electrolytes and osmolality closely. We can also administer barbiturates. And you know what barbiturates are. If you don't know them, go and look up barbiturates. We can administer barbiturates, um, barbiturates medication. We talk about that in pharmacology. We can administer them um, for coma. Um, they can help to also decrease the cellular metabolic demands until the ICB can be decreased. So barbiturate can do such work for the client who having uh, head injury and having increased intracranial pressure. We can also administer phenytone Dalantin to prevent seizure. Phenytone is an AED medication, anti-epileptic medication. AED, phenytone, or we call it Dalantin. It can be given to prevent seizure in the case of hair injuries. We can also give the client morphine. Morphine can be used as an analgesic, narcotic analgesic, to control pain and restlessness. Now, with morphine, we have to be careful because the client are having ICP. Morphine can suppress the breathing pattern, the breathing. Now, in that case, when we are providing morphine, we have to provide with caution of the client who has hair injury. Um, we can also do craniotomy. If other procedure, other drugs have failed, then we do a procedure called craniotomy. Craniotomy can be done to help with the head injury. So in craniotomy, what are we doing in there? It is just the removal of non-viable brain tissue that will allow the expansion or the removal of the epidural hematomas. So when it's a head injury, there will be hematoma form, uh, formulation within the brain area. So because we are given oral medication, because of the hematoma, um, there is hematoma within the brain because of the hematoma it is like a boy or it's like a, like a rising in the brain other drugs have failed to kill or to dissolve the hematoma so we must do a craniotomy we go in and open the skull bone and remove this particular uh, 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 growth or tumor it's not a tumor but it's like a like a like a um, blood a blood is like it's, not, it's, 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 it's like a how do I describe it? It's a blood in a sack. So they go in and open the brain, the score, the score or the cranial cavity, 
going and remove that particular sack of blood in that uh, in the brain. That the procedure we call craniotomy. Now under here for craniotomy, um, it involves drilling a burr hole. So to open up a burr, a burr, a burr hole on the brain and drill it until the month the 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 the, the, the hematoma because. There's a bleeding. When the bleeding occur, the blood wouldn't escape. The blood set up in a place and create hematoma. So when we do the craniotomy, we are removing that blood, that sack of blood within the brain. That's how we're doing it. So the bar, the the, the bar holes are circular openings on the skull. So we create these circular openings. This 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 is the skull. So we create the circular opening. These circular openings on the skull. To create a drills are what we call the boreholes. So the boreholes are circular opening on the score to drain out the blood uh, when there's a hematoma in a procedure called craniotomy. It's important that we understand this procedure because some of the anchor will give a question about these procedures. The procedure might be very easy and simple, but because we do not have ideas, so it might create different mentality about the question, and then we might get it wrong. Um, so, in the bar holes procedure, it is used to assess, uh, the bar hole is used to assess cerebral swelling, injuries, the size of the, of the hematoma, and position of the ventricles. It is a life-saving procedure. It is a life-saving procedure when other medications have failed to curtail or to seize or to arrest or to provide remedy for they um for the hair injury when there's those tumor occurring so if monitors by beta-rays the feeling tones the morphine fill out and the clients stay in coma then we'll do the cranial we'll do the cranial tummy so in this procedure it is a life-saving procedure that is linked with many potential complications such as the client might have a severe neurological impairment the client might have infection due to the surgery. The client might have persistent seizure. The client might have some other neurological deficiency and the client might even die from the procedure. It's a life-saving procedure, but it comes with so much complication. It is the last stage that we seek when all ulcers we've tried, it have failed us, this becomes the last treatment plan we do for clients who having tumor or who having hematoma in the brain. So remove ball holes, remove the hematoma, remove the procedure craniotomy. The goal in this condition for this procedure is to decrease the cerebral edema. So we've given the monitor. The monitor has drained the, the fluid and it cannot still help. So in this case, we can do the craniotomy to reduce the edema in the cerebrum. Medications such as monitor and disabetazone can be administered every six hours for up to 24 to 72 hours after surgery. We can also provide thinning tone or diazepam to prevent seizures after the procedure. We can monitor the client IC, which is the, the intracranial pressure. We can monitor it to assess the changes after the procedure. For supra for supratentorial surgery, we want to maintain the hair of the bed at least at 30 degrees. For supratemporium uh, surgery, 
want to maintain the bare head at a degree um, with the body positioning to prevent increased intracranial pressure. For the infratentorial craniotomy, keep the client flat and on other side for 24 to 48 hours to prevent pressure on the neck incision site. These are important tips when it comes to positioning after craniotomy. There are two kinds of craniotomy. I'm going to repeat them so you can understand them. In the first kind, we have what we call um, supratentorial surgery. In the supra, in the supra tentorial, supra, in the supra tentorial surgery, want to keep the bare head at 30 degree at all point in time to make sure the client is prevented from increased intracranial pressure. That's one. The second one is the infra. In the case of infra. Tentorial surgery. Look out for these words. In the case of infratentorial surgical procedure with the craniotomy, we want to make sure to keep the client flat on the client at the left or right side between 24 to 48 hours to prevent pressure on the neck at the incision site. These are important anchor tips for medicine. You want to remember them very well. So these are things you want to remember. And uh, there might be what we call brain herniation as a complication. When there is brain herniation, um, there is a downward shift. So when you get the word herniation, brain hernia, brain herniation, means there is a downward shift of the brain tissue due to cerebral edema. So cerebral edema has caused the brain to shift downward. So the brain has shifted downward, and that's what we call brain herniation. Brain tissue have the bridges have shifted to different side downward after cerebral edema or due to cerebral edema. Then that can cause what we call brain herniation, which is a complication of the procedure craniotomy or after head injury. Now, um, the brain consists of brain tissues, cerebral spinal fluid, and blood. So when there is a shift of the brain tissue, so there will be tissue shifting. There will be blood shifting and there will be shifting of the cerebral spinal fluid. All three will shift to a downward location, which can cause brain herniation. Um, in this case, you want to make sure that uh, uh, the findings for this will include the pupils will be dilated. There will be low there will be changes in the level of consciousness. There's going to be chain stokes restoration. There's going to be some hemodynamic instabilities. Just because of this shifting. So in this case, the recovery after, after this is rare. For a client to recover after this particular complication is hard. But yesterday there is sometimes there, there are good prognosis. Um we can give money toy, we can do surgical procedure for brain herniation, and there are other se several different types of neurological treatment that we can provide for the client when the client has brain herniation. For the nursing action. The, the situation can be prevented before the treatment. That's why we must put everything in place when the client is undergoing craniotomy. Because these are complications of craniotomy. Um, we want to monitor the client's glaucoma skills regularly. The client's intracranial pressure. We want to monitor all these things. The client BP and the client respiratory pattern. 
want to frequently update the client and the family about these problems and other things. The client can also have other complications like a diabetes inhibitors or SIDH from the surgery. The client can have cerebral salt wasting. The client can have hematoma or intracranial hemorrhage, all from the same cranial tummy. Those are complications. Any question?